Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. One of my favorite things to do is listen to an Audible book. It is such a great way to relax and pass the time as you're being transported from one place to another. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment in every genre imaginable. You can listen with the Audible app anytime, anywhere. Get your first three listens free with a 30-day trial. That's one audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash Danny to get started. I'm Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I just launched a new podcast called The Way We Live Now. Our lives have been disrupted, interrupted, but that does not mean that we can't reach one another in ways that are both powerful and intimate. I'll talk with people across the great human tapestry. What's life like for you today? We'll be reminded that we're not alone. Listen to The Way We Live Now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I talked to people that, that were there at those parties, and they said this, the priest would bring steaks over on a Friday night and grill them. I mean, you're Catholic, you can't eat, you can't eat steak on a Friday night, but they're pretty wild parties, and these are these might have been people that joined the priesthood, so they wouldn't have to go to war, World War II, who knows? But I think they probably met then. This is Jim Graham. Jim is now 73 years old. He's retired from a long career as an airline executive, and he lives with his wife in South Carolina. If you were to pass by Jim on the street, you might peg him for an older gentleman living a quiet, simple life. He has a sweet face, a bit on the reddish side, and kind eyes that seem ready at any given moment to laugh or to cry. This is a story of a secret so immense, so tightly held, not only by a family, but by one of the most powerful institutions in the world, the Catholic Church. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Buffalo, Williamsville, uh, New York. Uh, We lived on a quiet street uh, about two miles from the downtown center. And I was raised with my two older sisters, one two years older, one eight years older. John Graham, uh, my father, lived with us and his parents, who really raised me. My mother was divorced from John Graham. She lived in New York City, and uh, she would see us uh, about twice a year at four consecutive days. And these appointments or visitations were arranged by attorneys. And the hours of of seeing us would be from 10 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night. And in the house we lived in, I could never talk about my mother. There were no photographs of my mother. Uh, It was just understood that there would be no contact with my mother. The only thing we got from my mother was a uh, birthday cards and a Christmas package. And how did that feel to you as a, as a kid? I mean, was there an absence in terms of your mom not being around? Uh, yes. I mean, there, you know, my friends all had, had mothers, and uh, my friends would ask, you know, where's your mother? And I think on the street, uh, when my mother would come by and pick us up at you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, everybody would be looking out the window because they're all kind of, anxious to know who my mother is. She never got out of the car. So it was always kind of a secret, not just uh, at school, but on on our street. Um, And how was your mother during those visits? 
they were joyful, those visits. You know, it's the first time I'd get hugged, uh, uh, get kissed. This is the 1950s. A father getting custody of three children? Unheard of. So what had his mother done that was so horrible? When Jim asked his mother why he almost never saw her, she told him that a powerful divorce attorney had handled the divorce. But the Grahams weren't a wealthy family, so if you really thought about it, it didn't make sense. There had to be another reason why Jim's father was granted custody. After all, he wasn't exactly the fatherly type. So talk to me a little bit about John Graham, the figure that he was for you uh, as a boy as you were growing up. He was didn't spend much much time with me at all. He left early in the morning, came home late at night. He ran a gas station um, 365 days out of the year. He wouldn't eat with us at uh, regular dinner time. He came home later, and his uh, mother would serve him, uh, you know, a steak uh, almost every night later. Never threw a ball with me. Um, never said a nice thing to me. Never, never motivated me. Never asked anything about my games that I played, baseball or basketball, who won or you know how I did. Uh, it was kind of like uh, a no-contact sport unless something serious came up and I had to ask uh, permission for something. And then when I wanted to go to college, go to Pratt Institute, be a commercial artist, and I had good grades. My regular grades were about B, B plus, plus I had all A's in art. He said, I'm not going to co-sign a loan. If you flunk out, I'm stuck with the bill. So it was, it was just a, a very strange uh, upbringing. So Jim goes to college in Buffalo, and one day, he comes home to find that his grandmother and his aunt have opened his private mail, a letter from his girlfriend. This invasion of his privacy is the last straw in a miserable childhood. He throws his books and belongings into the back of his car and drives to New York City. I knew that my mother had, she mentioned she lived near Iraq, Idlewild Airport, that's what it was called in those days, so I filed a science Idlewild Airport, which is now Kennedy Airport. And I couldn't believe how big the, the airport was. It was bigger than Buffalo, New York, it seemed. So I pulled over and, and found her a number and, and information, called her, and uh, she said, where are you calling from? I said, I'm here at Idlewild Airport. I thought you lived near the airport. So she said, just stay there. We'll come find you. Well, I mean, she was just, well, she was shocked that I was there in the first place and asked if I had told the Grams that I was down here, and I said I hadn't. She said, well, you know, when we get home, you better give them a call. It comes, I'm sure they're concerned about where you are. And then uh, she was just, you know, very joyous to have me, and she was showing me off to the neighbors right away the next morning. And um, it was, you know, she just was in her um, element that she had a a child to uh, describe to people. So Jim is 18 years old and living with his mother for the very first time. His mom is now remarried to a New York City cop. Jim gets a job working as a mailboy at LaGuardia Airport, and he stays with his mom and stepdad for a while until he gets on his feet. And then a lot happens. Jim works his way up through American Airlines and is promoted each year. He's drafted into the Army and does a two-year stint. When he returns home, he meets his future wife. Then uh, I met my wife, who was a a stewardess with American Airlines, met her at Gate 8. We got married, and it was interesting. When my sisters got married, they invited one parent to the wedding, not the other, because uh, John Graham and my mother hadn't seen each other in 20-some years. But I didn't feel it was right uh, to bring my wife into a dysfunctional family. So I went to my mother and I said, will you come to our wedding? And she said, is your father coming? I said, no. So I went to my father. I said, will you come to my wedding? And she's, he said, is, is your mother coming? And, and I said, no. So they both ended up at the wedding um, and were surprised to see each other after uh, 20-some years. 
the reception was at my um, uh, Melody's uh, parents' uh, house, and we had the receiving line in the living room, and then the uh, reception was outside under tents in the backyard. And I put my father in, in the receiving line, and my mother went through it and shook his hand, and she didn't realize it was him until like two people later. And, and both uh, entourages went to different parts of the backyard under the tent, and they didn't, never had a conversation, but I could see them peeking at each other, peering over the other guests. I've noticed that when it comes to family secrets, often, without even knowing there is a secret, people become hell-bent on not repeating history. I know that was true for me, especially when I was starting a family of my own. I didn't know that there was a massive secret hanging in the air, or I should say, I didn't consciously know it. But I was clear on one thing. In my family, the one I was making, everything was going to be out in the open. That's what strikes me most about what Jim does here. He wants his new wife to meet both his parents at his wedding, like a normal family. And another thing I've noticed, when there are secrets, cracks begin to appear. No matter how seamless the facade may seem to be, at some point or another, there are hints, clues, a word, a phrase, a gesture that allows us to see that there's something lurking beneath the surface. John Graham was on an airplane with me uh, several years before he died. Uh, it was a pass that I gave him because when you were with the airlines, you can give your parents passes. And I said, why don't you go out to Hawaii to visit uh, my sisters and, and their grand, one had a grandchild. So I, I put him on that airplane and I was working that airplane. I was a representative for American selling uh, the return flight. I was a salesman on board basically. And I'm in a suit and talking to the passengers. And I put him up first class and I told the stewardesses to take care of me. He's my father. And he'd never been on an airplane before, I, I don't believe. And so after the second meal that he had, he called me up there when I was kind of finished talking to the passengers. He said, would you sit down with, with me for a minute? He was in the lounge opposite the galley at that point. And um, again, you know, I, I always thought of, of, of him as the, uh, the Jake Lamotta type guy. But here he's older, uh, weakened a little bit by diabetes, maybe heart condition. And he said, I just want to apologize for the way I treated you. And he cried profusely. We're going to pause for a moment. Family Secrets is sponsored by Audible. Lately, I've been traveling a lot. I've been in the back of cars, taxis. I've been on buses, on trains, on more planes than I can count. And one of my favorite things to do is to listen to an audible book. It is such a great way to relax and pass the time as you're being transported from one place to another. It's also a wonderful opportunity to take a break from screens. Just close your eyes, assuming you're not driving, and let your ears do the work. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment in every genre imaginable, including my personal favorite, memoir. You can listen with the Audible app anytime, anywhere. Get your first three listens free with a 30-day trial. That's one audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash Danny to get started. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. 
Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. John Graham dies when Jim is in his mid-30s. And one night, many years after John Graham's death, Jim, who is by now 48, is up late drinking scotch with a cousin. And he talks about the difference in the ways the two of them were raised. Jim speaks openly about his father, his temper, his neglect. And his cousin goes back and tells his father, Jim's uncle. And Jim's uncle gets very angry that Jim has been speaking ill of his dear departed brother. And so Jim's uncle Otto lets loose with a piece of huge information. He tells his son that Jim is not a Graham, that John Graham is not Jim's father at all. This would be enough of a bombshell, but the real bombshell is Jim's father, his biological father, is a Catholic priest. Jim's mother had an affair with a Catholic priest. Well, he, he leaks the fact that uh, I'm not a Graham, that my father was a priest to his son. His son leaks the information to my wife. And my wife, for a few weeks, didn't tell me because she didn't know it was true. So she kind of went through the, the Graham family to get some validation. And um, the aunt that lived with us said, don't tell him. And what did she do? She told me. Yeah. <laughs> it was over dinner in San Francisco at a nice restaurant. I was out there on business. I ordered a, a vodka on the rocks for my drink, and Normie Melody would drink a glass of wine, but she ordered the same thing, so I knew something was up. So during that dinner conversation, she said, um, I'm going to tell you something you, you'll, you never heard before. And she said that they told me that uh, your father was not John Graham, your father was Father Sullivan, Thomas Sullivan, a Catholic priest. Did you believe her? Did you believe it? Oh, yes. Uh, you did instantly. Yeah, I mean, because then I looked at my history, my childhood, and all those issues that were very strange just made sense. I, I could just see everything falling into place. It was, I was shocked because you normally think these things happen to other people. You read about it in a book or you see it in a movie. It doesn't happen to ordinary people. So for a moment, I was shocked. But then I could see it did happen because of the strange background I had. It all added up. Yeah, that's another thing that I feel like I hear a lot and I understand pretty well is that that feeling of like suddenly it's it's such an unlikely, impossible thing. And yet it's like the lights blink on and it's like, oh, well, that's that makes sense. Sure. Even though it's so shocking, it's both shocking and makes sense at the same time. So that conversation I had with John Graham in the airplane, that was one of the first things I thought of. Jim calls his Aunt Catherine and Uncle Otto and asks for a meeting. He wants to talk with them about his real history. They're not too pleased about this. After all, Uncle Otto is still mad at Jim for maligning his brother. Plus, they really just don't want to talk about Jim's real history. It was, there was no warm greeting. Uh, walked in, I walked into their, their kitchen. We were sitting around Oak Table, and Otto is now in his 80s, and Aunt Catherine's in her 80s, and uh, it was very awkward. I wasn't offered a cup of coffee or a Coke or anything. So I just asked uh, where the glasses were, and I poured myself a glass of water out of the faucet, sat down, and it was just very, very quiet. And then finally, Catherine said, I have something here for you. And she pulled a um, obituary on a, out on a newsletter on the table, and she said, this man may be your father. We don't know, only the principals know. And they're all dead. <laughs> 
So I'm looking, I'm looking at a photograph of, of a priest uh, with, you know, the obituary written with all his background. And he had receding hair. It was an older picture of a priest. But when I looked at his eyes, I looked at his nose, I looked at his mouth. I looked at his chin. Looked just like me. The newsletter the obituary came from is called The Oblite World. The Oblites are a Catholic order founded in France in 1843. Primarily missionaries, they came to North America through Canada and eventually found their way down to Buffalo. There's the name of an editor on the newsletter as well. Jim looks up that editor and finds an address and phone number in Tewkesbury, Massachusetts. I think the, the fact that they said, you know, uh, these are the principles only they know when they're dead, I think that was a talking point probably given to them by the church. That's how they should handle it. As if that would then be uh, a completely closed door. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This reminds me of a moment in my own story where I went to see this 80-something-year-old rabbi who knew my family, knew my dad, told him the whole story of what I knew at that point, and he just turned to me and he said, what story would ease your heart? And I said, the true one. And he just looked at me and he said, you'll never know. And I remember thinking, you don't know who you're dealing with. Right. Right. And I don't think they knew who they were dealing with here. Right. So the Grams shut you down. Right. And you have the editor or, you know, some some kind of lead. Right. Right. And interesting because you're not a journalist. Exactly. But you, you it sounds like you've become one. I have. So, so I called the number and I asked for an appointment to see the editor and I just mentioned that my family was friendly with the Father Sullivan in Buffalo years ago. And I just, you know, they always talked about him. I just wanted to come up and just see what he knew about him. So um, made the appointment. And he, when I made the appointment, he said, well, call us a couple of days before just to reconfirm. So when I reconfirmed, he was a, had a different attitude. He was kind of saying, well, I don't, we're not going to be able to go to lunch. And I can only meet you at 10 o'clock. And he knows I live in Oyster Bay. It'll be a four and a half hour drive to Tewksbury. Uh, so it would be a very short meeting. He was trying to discourage me. I said, well, I'll be there, Father. When it comes to secrets, timing is everything. What if Jim's Uncle Otto had let slip his long-held knowledge that Jim was the secret child of Father Tom Sullivan while Father Sullivan was still living? What do you suppose would have happened then? Or did that slip happen only because Uncle Otto and Aunt Catherine knew that the priest was dead? There's no way of knowing, but I do find the timing interesting, especially since Father Tom Sullivan had only died a few months earlier. So we stayed with friends in Brantford, Connecticut the night before, and then we drove up the next morning, and my wife was with me, and uh, we met uh, Father Reddy, and uh, he was very businesslike, and I just kind of felt uncomfortable that I'm not going to get much out of this, this meeting but I asked him about a Father Sullivan, and he said, well, he was a, a great orator. He was a, a great reader. He was a writer. He was an academic. Well, the other priests up here, they might be watching the Boston Red Sox. Uh, you know, he was always walking the halls and reading, a, you know, Time magazine or, or something for the Jesuits. Uh, so he said nice things about him. And then I said, uh, are there any personal effects that he might have that are still here? And he said, we're all old. We don't, we don't keep things, so there's, there's nothing here to, to show you. And he said there, there wouldn't be any reason for you to talk to any other priest about him either. So he was just, you know, trying to move the meeting along. And um, I asked if he had any relatives uh, that might be alive. And he said he's from Lowell, but I don't, I don't think there's anybody alive. I don't recall anybody coming to see him when he was in the infirmary. 
And so I knew I wasn't getting any farther with him. So I gave him my business card and I looked at him closely in the eyes with a little bit of a smile. And I said, you know, Father Reddy, if there's something you didn't tell me here today and you think you should, please give me a call. Once they're back in the car, driving away from the church, Jim's wife, Melody, asks him why he didn't tell Father Reddy that he's Tom Sullivan's son. But Jim just didn't feel comfortable. He wasn't the right one, he says. There'll be another one. They start heading home on 495. The next exit after Tewksbury is Lowell, which is where Jim has just learned his father is from. So they pull off the exit. I told you Jim's a born journalist, either that or private eye. They go to the first church and ask if anyone knew of a Father Sullivan in town. And as fate would have it, the first person he asks does know of Father Sullivan. And so Jim and Melody are directed to the Immaculate Conception Church. It was uh, March, and there was snow on the ground, about a foot of snow on the ground, but the sun was out. It was, you know, brilliant. It was, you know, a beautiful, beautiful day. So we drove to the rectory and uh, walked in, and there was a secretary there, and he asked uh, if uh, Father uh, Savage, uh, his name was mentioned, if he was available. And she said he's around here someplace. So she called a couple numbers, and while she was doing that, the door opened behind us, and I could just see a silhouette because there was the sun and the, out with the snow in the background. I could just see a silhouette of an older priest with a hat and a cape, and as he came close to me, then I could see his face, but very Irish-looking. And the uh, secretary said, this family is, is looking to hear, know a little bit more about a Father Sullivan. And so he took us into a little ante room right off the uh, the desk from the, the um, secretary. And he said basically the same things Father Reddy said, that, you know, Father Sullivan's great orator, he's a writer, he's a reader, so on and so forth. He could, you know, give a powerful sermon. And then I said, are there any relatives uh, left? And he said, let's go out and ask the secretary. So we went out there, and she said, no, I think they're all, they're all dead. They all uh, came here, sang in the choir. He had his mother, his three aunts, and his uncle. They would come here every Sunday in a big black Buick, but um, I think they're all dead. And then he said to my wife, he said, there was a Buffalo connection, though, and you might be interested in. Would you like to hear about that? And we said, sure. So we walked down a longer hall. He sat down behind a, a large desk, like a bishop's desk, we sat on, on the other side, and he pointed at my wife, are you an attorney? And she said, no. He pointed at me, are you an attorney? I said, no. So I said to him, then you know, Father. He said, yeah, I know. I said, how do you know? He said, you look just like At the end of their conversation, Father Savage suggests to Jim that he just get on with the rest of his life. He's still relatively young. He has good genes. Father Savage actually tells him this. And then he says, forget the injustices of the past. Forgetting the injustices of the past, especially when those injustices have shaped your entire life, well, that's just not going to happen. Jim comes back to visit Father Savage about a month and a half later. This time he comes alone and unannounced. Jim and Father Savage sit around a small, round table, and Jim asks for details. He'd heard that money had been put aside for his education. He wondered where that money went, since certainly it had never been used for that purpose. And Father Savage? He denies ever having told Jim anything about his father, flat out lies about it. Even though I'm not really up on my Catholic doctrine, I've got to assume that lying is considered a sin. And Jim is pretty sure that whoever Father Savage's boss is told him to shut it down, that if Jim came back, they should deny everything. It's kind of natural uh, that they're going to not tell me what really would happen. It's, I was just lucky I caught him off guard that day. 
So Jim begins to knock on doors. Lots of doors. He does research on the Oblite world and finds classmates of his father's. They all refer to him as Father Tom Sullivan, not your father. They're well-trained, careful. Jim also follows the money trail. He's able to read the wills of Father Sullivan's immediate family. They were an affluent family who owned real estate in Lowell. But since Father Sullivan had taken a vow of poverty, he couldn't receive the assets. And just to be clear, it isn't money Jim is after. It's information. It's history. It's justice. But like a good detective, he's following the money, because the money might just get him there. Jim eventually discovers the woman who ended up heir to the Sullivan assets. She was a nurse who had taken care of Thomas Sullivan's mother and aunts when they fell ill. And in the absence of any other heirs, they left the money to her. He drives to her house and knocks on the front door. She lets him in, almost as if she'd been waiting for him. So, um, again, I said, I'm not here for the assets. I'm here for the information. And there must have been somebody that knew my father's story, knew about me. There had to be somebody. And she said, it's funny you should ask. There was a nun that would come here with him every now and then, and they were very close. And she gave me the name Sister Mary. Uh, So when I got back to uh, New York the next day, I got on the phone and I called up the order that she was with. Jim is able to track down Sister Mary, and he and Melody make yet another drive to New England, this time to Boston, to take her out to dinner. My wife said, what are you going to ask her first when you see her at the door? And they said, I'm going to ask her if I remind her of anybody. Uh, I rang the doorbell, and I could hear the steps coming down uh, to the landing. And she opened the wind door, I opened the glass door, and I said, Sister, do I remind you of anybody? And she just shrugged her shoulders. She said, I'll be right back. So she walked up the stairs very slowly, came back down, and now she had a bag that she was carrying with her in addition to a purse. And uh, we drove to the restaurant. It was very quiet in the car. And we, I asked for a table in the corner, which was um, so we would be out of the way of, of the traffic and, and noise. And we're sitting down there. It's very awkward. Not much is being said. And she says, um, the mission statement of my order is to tell the truth, and that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, so she said, Uh, I read about you in your father's journal. And she was the first one to use the term, your father. She said he was uh, going through an operation and he thought he might not get out of it. So he said, here's the keys to my desk. I have a journal there and you can read it, but destroy it after you read it. So she said, that's right. I learned about you. And she told me again, great things about my father, the relationship that they had. So we, we had a very emotional meeting. She kept looking at, at my hands. She just was seeing the similarities between you and, and right. your father. Yeah. So after that visit, and I won't be able to read this, but maybe you can. Uh, she submitted this card. Jim hands me a card with a big heart and a smiley face on it that looks like it's just bursting with joy. On the inside of the card, it says, you put a smile in my heart. Thanks so much. His beautiful handwriting. Can I read it aloud? Okay. Dear Jim. Your letter and the picture came today. I can hardly find the words to tell you what is in my heart. Ever since Saturday, all I can see is your beautiful smiling face when I opened the door. You have no idea how you affected me. You are the very image of your father. As I told you, 
I was in the hospital when he died. I never really grieved until I saw you. After you and Melody left, and I didn't want you to leave, I had a good cry. Monday, I cried all the way home from work. It was so kind of Melody to call me from Connecticut. Someday I'll explain it all more fully to you. When you told me your story, your suffering ached in my heart. I hope your struggle with the pain of unknowing is eased a bit. After 40 years of silence, I felt relieved. The diaries started with the Noviet. How do you say that word? Noviciate. Noviciate. I'm a Jewish girl. What can I say? <laughs> the diaries started with the Noviciate days, poignant and painful, but even more so after you were born. Today, I worked on the history. Even before your letter came, I went to the PO to mail a tape Dr. Maureen made for me. The homily will interest you. I don't want to be a pest. Uh, so if I am, just shut me off. If you can. Love and prayers. Um, and it's signed, sister. 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 Well, this made me cry. What an extraordinary woman. Still alive today at 100. We're going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor. Hey, young world, the world is yours. The Ball Alert Show podcast is a new podcast with a fresh perspective on pop culture happening. The NFL, you're not just going to tear the NFL down in one sitting. And let's, let's talk about this. They're all 80. Every owner is 70. They're on the way out. Comment creeping on social media. People are like, okay, Aisha Curry is like a little corny or whatever it is they think, right? So now it's like anything that she does, oh, she didn't do the Millie Rock right. Oh, she didn't exp- explain City right. and Hot Girl Summer right. Oh, she, like, damn, like, it, it's, y- y'all are, y'all are alive. Baller man. My man is in jail and I started to like someone else. I know it's not right, but I really can't fake what I'm feeling. What should I do? And we even cover world news. It's your lifestyle specialist, Kenny Byrne. With your favorite Ethiopian Sue Solo. And the kid, Ferrari Simmons. Make sure you check us out on our brand new podcast. The Baller Alert Show podcast. Podcast. Available now on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Sammy J, and I am so excited to announce that for the season finale of my podcast, Let's Be Real with Sammy J, we have NBA All-Star and mental health advocate, Kevin Love. Nothing robs us of more human potential than mental illness. It's so, it's like the, the pandemic that nobody's talking about. We talk about Kevin's journey with his anxiety, depression, and, of course, his amazing NBA career. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jim's research takes him to the archives of the Oblites Order in Washington, D.C., where he meets a Father O'Donnell from Buffalo. O'Donnell is the first, and it should be said the only, priest who shows Jim kindness and compassion. Father O'Donnell gives Jim access to the archives, and then they go up to the cafeteria for lunch. He introduced me as Father Sullivan's nephew. Now, I never mentioned I was related to Father Sullivan, but I, but I knew what he was doing because Father Savage said, you look just like him, and these older priests were probably my father's age and probably knew him, so I think he just did that to kind of cover himself. Uh, so we went downstairs later, uh, to the archives again. There weren't any priests around. And I said, Father O'Donnell, I'd like to tell you something. I'm not Father Sullivan's nephew. I'm his son. So with that, there was no change of expression. 
and he reached in his, uh, he had an Eisenhower jacket on and he had some um, documents in there in a, in, a, in a pouch. And he, he gave them to me and he said, um, uh, these are, are documents uh, that you may want to have. And there were some were written in Latin, some were written in English. Uh, I'm going to give you these. And there's others that were purged. The documents that he gave me talked about Father Selvin having a relationship with a woman. Didn't mention her name, but a woman. So later during that conversation, we we're in his office and uh, I saw a rack of shelf and there were a lot of crucifixes just kind of on piles, just laying there. And I said, um, what are those? And he said, well, some of the families don't come back and get the personal effects of the, the priests that passed away. So there's some crucifixes left over from those that are deceased. But he said, if you want to go through them and find one that says uh, T.S. Sullivan on it, you can have it. So I did. I think about the way it must have been back in the mid-1940s when Tom Sullivan and Jim's mother first met. Jim had described his mom as tall, a redhead, pretty. She was always beautifully dressed and had a friendly way about her, smiling all the time. There were more women than men at home back in Buffalo during World War II. The men were away and the women were around, building aircrafts in Lackawanna, New York. Jim's mom liked parties. She was famous for throwing Friday night parties once a month. And so she invited priests and professors from the local seminary to fill in for the absent husbands. They'd come over and grill steaks and have cocktails. The parties were wild, fueled by the pent-up tensions of the time. It's easy enough to imagine the way the young priest and the young housewife might have fallen for each other and decide to run off and make a new life. So at this point, you know, right? You know. Um, You know who your father was. So then what happens? I wrote Rome, uh, where the order is headquartered. And uh, I waited till I could see that the, the head of the order, they call him the uh, uh, general superior, was from Buffalo. He, he was installed. So I figured he speaks English. Formerly, there was, uh, I think, an Italian uh, superior general. And I thought it might be awkward to send him a, a letter. He may not, you know, read it the same way I did. And knowing that this man was from Buffalo, he would know some of the priests that I dealt with. So I sent him a letter to say that, um, and a very respectful um, that, you know, I met with these various priests and um, I believe in Father Sullivan's son. They gave me some backgrounds of Father Sullivan. They never said your father, but I'd like the church to confirm that he is my father. So I got a letter back about two weeks later, just a short one, probably prepared by a canon lawyer. Basically it said, we have no records of Father Sullivan's fathering a child. So I wrote another letter to the, to the same superior general, gave him more detail about my research, very respectful again, but I just said that, you know, I, I know I have files from files from Father O'Donnell. He said, oh, there's war uh, perch. Um, but you must have still have those records and know about those, the, those, those records because you're from Buffalo. You know the same people I do. And this is your chance when you, you became a priest. You probably never realized you'd be a leader of a major order. But this is your chance to do something Vatican, like this in Vatican II, to be transparent, to be truthful. Got a letter back, basically the same thing from a canon lawyer. We have no records. Were you at that point feeling like, now I've got a closed door? Yes. And if, you, if you go to Rome and you get those responses, you know, twice, 
How did you feel about this superior general who then who wrote back to you twice with this boilerplate response? Uh, I, I just I just felt that it's hard to believe um, that they resist you know so strongly. You know when you pour your heart out in a letter and he knows all the people that that I met with. It's just hard to believe that they're they're going to stonewall you that way. But it's reality. It was reality. So um, at that point, did you feel like dead end? Uh, I was just thinking, you know, what's my next move? And uh, I didn't give up. A friend of Jim's tells him to go see the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight, in which a team of reporters at the Boston Globe uncovers a horrifying pattern of sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Boston. Jim knows he needs help now. He writes to the reporter, Mike Resendez, and hears back from him within hours. Resendez begins working on a story not just about Jim's case, but about a series of secret children of Catholic priests, an article that ends up on the front page of the Boston Globe. There's nothing like a front page story in a national newspaper to make people who haven't wanted to pay attention suddenly pay attention. Jim is supposed to meet with Boston Cardinal Sean O'Malley, but at the last minute, Jim is disinvited to the meeting. Still, the Cardinal promises to call the leader of the Oblites Order in the United States and have him speak with Jim and find a resolution. Finally, it seems that there's light for Jim at the end of a very long and dark tunnel. I got a call from a father, Studer. And the first thing he said to me, he said, you know, Cardinal O'Malley asked me to call you. And when I was installed last year as the head of the order here, uh, I heard about this thing lingering out here, your story. This thing lingering out here. That's, That's the way he phrased it. And he said, you may think you're Father Sullivan's son, but you can't prove it right away. And he he repeated that. He badgered me. There was nothing pastoral about the conversation. So I told him about, you know, some of the uh, interviews I had with other priests that said, you look just like him, so on and so forth. But then he followed up, but you can't prove it. I said, why don't you call Father O'Donnell? He gave me my father's crucifix. I believe he thinks I'm Father Sullivan's son. Never said so, but I believe he thinks so. He said, well, he can't prove it. I said, just call him. He hung up on me, and uh, he did call him. He called me back about an hour later. He said, I apologize for hanging up on you. He said, I spoke to Father O'Donnell. He does believe your father Sullivan's son, but you can't prove it, and he can't prove it. And here's where Jim's extraordinary tenacity and doggedness, that sense of, you don't know who you're dealing with, comes in. He sends a letter to Father Studar and says... There is one way to prove that Father Sullivan is his father, if the church allows him to exhume the body. And I thought about doing this before in the past, but I thought it would be just uh, grandstanding because they're never going to let me do that. Two weeks later, I get a, a letter from them. They said, you can do that if you do it at your own expense and no photographs are taken. There's no press on the property. I, I just couldn't believe it. Why do you think that they gave you permission to do that? I think it was a poker game, and they're just going to offer Jim Graham something so they can at least say that, you know, they're, they're open to it. But I never thought, I don't think they ever thought I would do it. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Did you pretty much know from that moment that you received the permission to do it that you would do it? Or, or was no, it? No, I said I had to do it. You know, I, I, it's, it's a poker game, so you have, you have to follow through. But I wasn't expecting to get that kind of a letter. And, I, you know, it's not a process that that I wanted to go through because it, because I already know he's my father. 
But at this point, I have to prove it to the church. So were you actually present when he was exhumed? We were, we were supposed to be present by the, the terms that I had asked for. But what happened at the last second is we're at the cemetery that morning, and I'm walking up the hill to where my father's grave is at the Tewksbury Private Cemetery. And, and I'm walking with the um, forensic anthropologist who was going to be doing the work. There was a big blue tarp covering the area, and there was a backhoe. We could see the top of the backhoe sticking up from the blue tarp. And the administrator for the Oblites, not a priest, came down, and he said that, I know you wanted to be graveside, but the uh, excavators won't let you do that. That's in their policy. They don't want families sitting graveside when they're you know, digging a grave. Anything could happen. It could be a, a wooden casket we didn't know, and it might collapse, and they didn't want families you know, seeing that kind of a situation. So I said, I have no problem with that. So I had to sit a hundred yards away in a park bench with my wife while um, the exhumation was going on. It was supposed to take about an hour and a half, but a lot of things went wrong. It took over three hours. It was a hot, humid day. Um, it was a difficult day. As the uh, anthropologist came down the hill after she did her work, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Amory Myers from uh, Massachusetts, uh, renowned up there for the work that she does. She had a big smile on her face, and she said, I saw the photographs of your father that you gave me. That's your father, because he's pretty well-reserved after 25 years. So we sent the DNA uh, specimens off to a um, high-profile lab that does FBI work in the Washington, D.C. area. It took over, over two months to get the results. But uh, the results were 99.999% that I'm his son. How did that feel, getting that tangible result? I, actually, we did it up in Massachusetts, and uh, I was with the uh, anthropologist. I didn't want her to tell me on the phone, so I drove up there and wanted her to tell me in person. And it, it was emotional. I didn't think it would be, because I knew it was going to be him, but it was still emotional. I find it pretty extraordinary, too, that, um, you know, that as a forensic anthropologist, her job is to look at the DNA, right? And that when she came from the gravesite and she had that smile on her face, she was saying to you, that's your father, which is so unscientific. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she wasn't going to let the DNA yeah. be the only thing speaking. That's right. So what was the response of the Catholic Church once faced with the absolute evidence proof that you were indeed Father Sullivan's son. Silence. I never heard from them. Because they knew. What can they say? I asked Jim about peace, about closure. What does it feel like to have been able to put all the pieces of his childhood together until they make sense, even if it's a kind of painful sense? And what of Father Sullivan, Jim's father, what must it have been like to have given up a child? I think the piece I have is that I followed through. I didn't give up. I'd still like them to say, to confess to what they did to us in the 40s. When they separated us. They took my father back into the, to the order, and he, was, he had spent 16 years in Essex, New York, in a camp, rehabilitation camp that the Oblites had for wayward priests. 16 years in a camp, a rehabilitation camp for wayward priests. What was the church trying to rehabilitate in Tom Sullivan? What exactly was so wrong with falling in love with a woman, having a child with her? I know, I know, divorce was rare in those days, but it wasn't impossible. 
Why was it so essential to the church to break this man's spirit and to separate him from his son? They took me from my mother's custody and put me in John Graham's family to look like John Graham's son. John Graham lied in a, in a, in a deposition in an action for divorce between my mother and him. When the judge said, is that your son? He said, yes. So it was, it was very well organized, the scheme, the conspiracy, back in 1947 to ensure that I would never know my father as a priest. When you think of the idea that you would never have known, are you glad you know? Oh, definitely. Because it solves all those mysteries. Earlier in our conversation, when Jim and I were sitting across from each other in the small soundproof recording studio in Atlanta, he reached into his briefcase and pulled out a crucifix, inching it across the table. It was bronze and black, heavy in the hand, with the lettering T.S. Sullivan. There it was, an heirloom, a birthright, a piece of evidence. That's extraordinary. What did that feel like, finding that? It's like... It's like a part of it. I'd like to thank my guest, Jim Graham, for sharing his family secret and recounting his 25-year journey to revealing the truth. You can find out more about his story on his Twitter account at jimgraham 45 that's Jim Graham and then the numbers four or five. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Andrew Howard and Tristan McNeil are the audio engineers. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at FamSecretsPod. That's FamSecretsPod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. Family Secrets is brought to you by Audible. We live in a noisy, busy world. And lately, I have been really noticing that what I want to do is put on my headphones and I want to listen. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment in every genre imaginable. You have, at all times, a library at your fingertips. You can listen with the Audible app anytime, anywhere. Get your first three listens free with a 30-day trial. That's one audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Just visit audible.com slash Danny to get started. I'm Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I just launched a new podcast called The Way We Live Now. Our lives have been disrupted, interrupted, but that does not mean that we can't reach one another in ways that are both powerful and intimate. I'll talk with people across the great human tapestry. What's life like for you today? We'll be reminded that we're not alone. Listen to The Way We Live Now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.